Back again. Hello. Welcome to Political as Heck, a podcast where we discuss Utah politics and policy. I'm Corey Astle, joined by Utah State Senator Todd Weiler. Hey, yo. Hi, Corey. Hey, yo. What's going on, Todd? Happy Easter. Happy Easter to you. Yeah, it's been great. Spent a lot of time with family and we pretty much treated it like Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving Yeah, that's the way to do it. Thanksgiving (laughs) with more sugar. (laughs) Exactly. So that was fun. Okay, let's uh, let's pick up a little bit where we left off last week. The Tucker Carlson, Spencer Cox saga continued into this past week. This week, Utah GOP chairman Carson Jorgensen appeared on the Tucker show to respond to Tucker's criticism of Governor Cox. Uh, Jorgensen told Tucker that the governor is out of step with Utah Republicans, and many Republicans are experiencing buyer's remorse for voting for Cox. Todd, do you agree with, with Carson Jorgensen's assessment? Well, first of all, I, I agree that some Utahns are maybe have buyer's remorse, probably the ones who voted for Greg Hughes <laughs> anyway. But um, I, I think that Cox remains uh, a popular Republican governor in the state. Um, I, I know the, the last um, the last published poll had him well over 60 percent. My guess is he's still there. And so I'm not saying Carson's wrong because there's 3.3 million people in the state and you can't satisfy everyone all the time. Um, but I, I don't think that, um, you know, when when Governor Cox is up for reelection in two years, I don't think that this Tucker Carlson report is or the events that he was reporting on are going to make or break um, Cox's reelection. But I I do think, and I'm going to say this, and I like Carson Jorgensen and I consider him, you know, an acquaintance, a friend. Um, I think it was a mistake for him to go on the show and do that. I think, um, I think that that is not healthy for the party. And I I think that he's had a hard time raising money and I think this will make it harder for him to Mm. raise money. So I'm not, I'm not sure that that was a, a wise move for him. I'm not saying that Cox will be, um, you know, that he's going to be vindictive, but I think that people that were leery of Carson Jorgensen, you know, are going to be a lot more leery of him now. So mm. that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. So to your point about the, uh, the polling, I actually heard this past week that they did have some polling that was taken before the Tucker show. So we don't know what, but, but after is. the veto override. Right. But after the veto override, it showed yeah. Cox above 60 percent. So I think that, you know, tar- I don't know if that was just Republicans only or whether that included everyone in the state, including Democrats. Well, but I, I know I, I know, but I've been sworn to secrecy. But l- let me just say, I think a good guess would be it, it included both uh, just Republicans and also statewide. So, I mean, he, he's he's he, he continues to be a popular governor. And I think even though some Utahns may disagree with him on one issue, i.e. transgender sports, I don't know that that means that they turn on him um, in totality. If you've been watching Spencer Cox for the past five or six years, he's been very outspoken that he's going to be a kinder, gentler type of person. And he's going to try to respect kids. And he's taken a very strong interest in, 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 in transgender mm-hmm. teens and making them, helping them feel accepted. And that's why, I th- that's why I continue to say, I think that the, the video clip was edited because the people that are trying to hurt Cox didn't want them to see him just being sympathetic to a, a teen who's obviously struggling. So. Yeah. So it's hard, it's hard to pick up on even Carson said on the, on, on the show that he said, it's hard to tell. And um, I, I think it's definitely hard to tell, although that polling is interesting. I, I can just say that I got an earful from 
quite a few people about this one. Well, I think he'll uh, get booed at convention. He got booed at convention last year. I think he'll get booed at convention on Saturday. Um, And and I think that's just further evidence that the delegates, uh, especially this year's crops, are not necessarily representative of their neighbors, which is exactly the opposite of what the caucus is supposed to be. Yeah, I'm not sure I want to go that far, but um, I think it is worth pointing out to say that. But, but Corey, if over 60 percent of the Republicans support Cox and if less than 60 percent of the delegates support Cox, what, what would that indicate to you? Didn't you just say that you you had inside knowledge that the, that 60 percent poll was statewide, including Democrats? No, no, no it's broken down, but it's above 60 percent for all the categories. I see. OK. Yeah. OK. Yeah. All right. That's interesting. Uh, I mean, so that it's certainly the case that this I think this episode did go viral in Utah and it captured some attention. But I think it's worth pointing out real quick. I mean, we talked about this a little bit last time. I said I was skeptical of, you know, the left is always saying, oh, Fox News says whatever. The truth is, like, if Fox's average viewership in prime time is two point eight million. So in a country of three hundred and thirty million <laughs> So even if half of those were were voting Republican, like that's two percent of voters yeah. who actually are watching Fox. And the Tucker Show leads all cable news channels in prime time with three point eight million, which is still basically nothing. So, but there's um, there's not a lot of people in Utah that follow politics that didn't see that clip because it went viral. Yeah, I mean, you texted it to around. me. It's been on Facebook. It's been other places. So even if only 3.8 million people nationwide are seeing that, but when he's talking about Spencer Cox and Mitt Romney, more people in Utah are going to be interested in it. All right, let's move on to, uh, to another topic that was really, has been really hot the last several days. And that's the, on Friday, CNN published some text messages between Senator Mike Lee and former White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows. I think it's fair to characterize some of the texts uh, sent just after election night as showing Senator Lee trying to assist the Trump team as they sifted through the results. And the texts that were sent later in December seemed to show Senator Lee had kind of lost faith in the president's election challenge. I want to give you a chance to, to weigh in on this, and I know you have thoughts, but first I want to walk through it a little bit because I, I think this is important to lay out the facts that we have in, the, in our possession. So on November 4th, uh, Lee tells voters that they ought to allow the counters to do their, the vote counters to do their job. On November 7th, he sends a text to Meadows saying that Sidney Powell may have some information to share with the president. Now this text, if there's a, if there's any gotcha in there, this might be it in the sense that like she has been, you know, discredited and, but less than two weeks later, he advised Trump to to dismiss her, but we'll get to that in just a sec. November 9th, Senator Lee tells Meadows he wants to be helpful, but Trump, needs the right legal team to do the work. On November 19th, uh, Sidney Powell makes some wild accusations about Venezuela and George Soros supposedly interfering with the election. She claimed that Dominion voting systems, including included software created, quote, at the direction of uh, Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez to swing the election results. Now, um, Dominion has lawsuits, uh, defamation suits against Powell and against Fox News that are pending right now. And I think there's a good chance... um, you they're know, gonna win. they're going to win. <laughs> but uh, November 19th, Mike Lee, he actually te- he sends a text to distance himself from Powell. Um, and he recommends the president disassociate with himself with Powell and refute any of the claims that she can't substantiate. So 
he quickly saw that she she wasn't quite what she claimed to be. And over the next few days, he asked Meadows, what what should he be saying? Now, this a lot have been made of this. Many on the left, including the Salt Lake Tribune, see this as prima facie evidence that Mike Lee is a stooge for the president. But I think the subtext really here seems to be that Lee is actually skeptical of the Trump team's legal case because he's basically saying he wants to be helpful, but he needs some more evidence. Like he's kind of like Corey, saying, let, let's let's be accurate. He said to Mark Meadows, tell me what to say. And that makes him look weak. That doesn't make him look like the senior citizen, senior senator from uh, from Utah that's leading. He's saying to a chief of staff, tell me what to say. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a, when, when you when you look at it out of context, to me, it, it, I can see how it's a bad look. But I mean, to me, like, again, the subtext is sort of like, I want to be helpful. Tell me what it is to you guys. What's the argument? Because I want to be helpful, but I need some evidence. I mean, it's basically what he's saying. So then on November 23rd, he calls out progressives and says President Trump has every right to verify the fair, fairness and accuracy of the election. And I don't know why this wouldn't doesn't make sense, because it's how the process should work. I mean, legitimate concerns worked through the legal process is exactly how it should work. So and honestly, I don't believe for one second that any Democratic senator would have behaved any differently if the tables were turned in there. So then in December, uh, Senator Lee is telling Meadows he needs the Trump team to provide some evidence to keep the case alive. So once again, this is kind of the subtext being that Senator Lee actually doesn't seem to think that Trump has made his case, is what it reads to me. And then on January 3rd, Senator Lee says the Senate has no authority to reject a state's certified electors. That's right. And so, and he says for a state to submit a Trump slate of electors, it must happen, quote, based on the conclusion that is the proper result under state law. So, I mean, is that really a disputable question? So Lee's saying here that the, the electors need to follow the law. He's probably responding to Meadows or others telling him the plan was to replace the electors. So you have Lee here saying that actually, okay, maybe that could work, but only so long as it doesn't violate state law. So I don't know what's scandalous about that too much. And then, of course, on January 6th, he voted to certify the election in Arizona and Pennsylvania in, in, uh, in direct conflict with, with what Trump wanted and, and his team. So to me, like the trip thinks it's found the smoking gun here, but I think just walking through the text, it doesn't seem to me that there's really all that much to work with other than maybe, maybe a little bit of a bad look saying, you know, tell me what to say, but Todd, what do you, what do you think? How do you interpret so the text? So I'm going to break this down as the good, the bad, the ugly. The good is um, I think Senator Lee made the right vote on January 6th. And I think uh, the good is uh, if you're looking for good in these texts, he's constantly telling uh, Mark Meadows, you know, you need to follow the Constitution, you need to work within state legislatures, you need to follow the law, you need to develop a legal case. So I think all of that actually makes Mike Lee look pretty good. The bad we've already talked about is tell me what to say. I just don't think that's a good look for a U.S. Senator running for his third term um, right now. The ugly, which you didn't mention, is he's on record um, with the media, including the Salt Lake Tribune, um, basically saying that he didn't get involved in this until about a month later that the, tr the text shows he did. So I, I do think that there are, I think based on statements that he made after January 6th, um, he looks like he was a little bit uh, at best less than candid at worst, maybe dishonest with, with the media interviews. And of course, those statements weren't under oath. I don't think that this changes his reelection. I think that for people that love Mike Lee, this, this, this doesn't affect it at all. For people that hate Mike Lee already, 
this is just proof that he's in with the Trump, you know, uh, you know, conspiracy and with people on the fence, you know, that could go either way on Mike Lee or Evan McMullen or whatever. I think this will, this will, will probably um, cost him, you know, a couple percentage among that group, but, but he, I, I, I don't think that, that this is going to uh, make him uh, lose his reelection. So. Yeah, I definitely agree that it's not going to make him lose his election. And I see what you're saying, but if in some ways, when you, when you read these texts, he, there's a skepticism there of, well, that, that was but, why I said the good, that's the good, that's the good part. Yeah. So, I mean, in many ways, uh, you know, the, the folks who are like Mike Lee fans or, well, let's say who are the most um, loyal to, uh, to the, to Trump and to the election integrity. I mean, they may have questions here. So that's why, that's why I, I tend to think it's not the smoking gun that, that, that some might think it is. No. I, I, and if you, if you read the Tribune, Robert Gerke, did an opinion piece that I saw online about two days ago. And he basically said, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot there, there. I, I, I think it made for some inconvenient headlines for Senator Lee, but um, I don't think this story has legs unless, unless there's more to come out that we don't know. And let's, let's uh, make the point that how did this get out in the first place? I mean, you have, you basically have the, the, the commission sharing stuff with CNN and CNN immediately releases it. So if that's the best they got, that's the goods. That's the goods. Yeah, and uh, I'm, I'm not so sure that there's going to. There's be not a lot. There's not a lot of there there. So. Another shoe dropping. Okay, uh, another interesting thing this week: the National Bureau of Economic Research published a working paper that compares COVID outcomes in the 50 states in the District of Columbia based on three variables economy, education, and mortality. Utah ranked first by a substantial margin, which is pretty cool, and scored well across all three categories. We were fourth on economy, fifth in education, uh, eighth in COVID mortality. That's adjusted for the state's population age and the prevalence of obesity and diabetes, which obviously is a little bit lower in Utah. But anyway, to me, this is a testament to how the leaders of the state sifted through the hysteria and were able to navigate the pandemic. And Governor Cox deserves substantial credit. Uh, so does the legislature. I think many of the big decisions well, were made by the legislature and, and by and, county governments. And Governor so, Herbert, quite frankly, because a lot of that was, Governor a lot Herbert, of those right, decisions yeah. were made by Governor right. Herbert or That's by right. his so, administration. So. so congratulations to all and congratulations to you and the, and the legislature as well. And of course, the Democrats are poo-pooing this study. Um, but here's, here's what I'm going to say. Um, re, there were a lot of conservative voices from day one saying, hey, these shutdowns are going to have impacts, um, you know, that we're not measuring. And a lot of the liberal voices were saying, shut it all down, shut it down forever. And, you know, we now know that, um, you know, I mean, they're now, there's a, now a national organization recommending that kids, eight-year-old kids be tested for anxiety. Um, <laughs> whereas, you know, before COVID, they were saying, you know, wait. Scandalous. Um, and so, um I, I like this because it's trying to balance. And, and, and here's the fact, um, these states that went all in on shutdowns and you know, kept their kids home for over a year from school, they don't have any better stats on, on you know, that they kept people alive. In fact, uh, many of those states are, you know, New Jersey is the very worst on the, on the state by state death rate. And I, I always hear, well, I always see people on Twitter in Utah, Democrats on Twitter saying, oh yeah, but those, 
you know, New York is a lot more condensed than Salt, than Salt Lake. Yes, it is. But Utah and Utah is um, by rank. We are the ninth most urban state in the country because the vast, vast, vast majority of our population uh, is between Payson and Ogden. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And it's right. not spread all, all throughout the mighty five. And so, you know, we, it's, you know, yes, we're not as dense as, as um, um, New York, but, um, but we are denser than 41 other states in terms of our population. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a, a lot of tough decisions were made. And, and at the time, some of them were hard because and, you and I'm gonna, screaming that the, the world was going to end and, and, and you're killing kids and yeah. you know, the legislature. And we got a little bit lucky, Corey. I mean, we, we got a little bit lucky. Uh, but, you know, we, we, you know, because Governor Herbert announced in May, so two months into COVID, that, that, the, that the kids would be going back to school in August. And, and for the most part, th- then we had some schools, you know, starting and stopping, starting and stopping until I ran Senate Bill 107, um, that next, you know, where we did the test to stay. And then that became, that worked until it didn't, until Omicron. Um, it wasn't perfect. Look at Utah made some mistakes. We got a little bit lucky. Um, but we also got a lot of criticism that I think was undeserved and we got, we're, we're probably going to get some credit that's undeserved too, but I'm glad it worked out well. Well, I think when the, when this the final chapter is written on, on the pandemic, I think, I think the evidence is pretty solid that, that the shutdown was, didn't help. I mean, at the time we were all afraid and it was new and unknown. And so it did make, I guess, some sense. But I think at this point, it's, there's overwhelming evidence to show that it didn't really do anything except delay the inevitable. The, the one thing that has haunted me, I don't think I've ever told you this, within a week of the shutdown, I heard a historian, uh, probably, I don't remember where I heard him, but he said, um, I promise you there will be riots within, in the streets within two months. And, and he wow. gave five examples of times when governments have told people to stay home and that always resulted in riots in the streets. And those riots started in, in, in May, you know, with George Floyd and George Floyd was the spark, you know, but if it wasn't George Floyd, it might've been something else. But that's amazing to me that in March or early April, I heard somebody on TV saying there will be riots in the street. And I'm like, what is he talking about? And sure enough, there were. Yeah, that's prescient. And you have right now the, in contrast, you have uh, China that's Shanghai gone in a very much more authoritarian uh, direction. And uh, they're literally shutting people in. Yeah. It's a tragedy for those people because they're, they're trapped, they're stuck. And unlike in America, you could have argued, said, well, we're waiting for the vaccines to come online. Well, the Chinese vaccine has been online for a long time and it's garbage. It doesn't it's work. Garbage. And the- There's no end game for them. It's just to stay locked forever. And, and, you know, China's five vaccines are garbage. My son was in Cambodia on a mission and he was offered a couple of them and he eventually turned them down and he's been vaccinated since he got home. But you know, the Chinese vaccine's garbage, but our, our vaccine is, our vaccines are better, but we're also talking about the fourth shot for people in less than two, you yeah, know, sure. just in, over a year. So it's not Absolutely. like ours is the, is the, it's the greatest thing in the world, <laughs> but it has saved uh, hundreds of thousands of lives. All right, let's hit this last topic. We've got uh, fundraising numbers for Q1 right before the convention. The convention is this Saturday and i I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about on uh, for next week's show, talking about the convention. We'll both be there. But uh, quick on the fundraising numbers, Senator Lee raised $1.1 million. He has $2.4 cash on hand, $2.4 million. Becky Edwards raised $200,000. She has two eighty six. 
286,000 cash on hand. And, and she's donated about 380,000 to her own campaign. So that's basically her, it's her money. Yeah, so. her money. It's a good point. Uh, Allie Isom raised 126,000. She has 98,000. And she's donated over $100,000 to her campaign. So that's also her money. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see how, how whether, whether they go all in on this stuff. Very interesting to me is uh, Cale Weston has only raised $70,000 and he has 44000 cash on hand. So I think this does inform the conversation on the Democratic side of <laughs> should they endorse McMullen or not. We don't know McMullen's numbers because since he's an independent, he doesn't, he's not competing in the uh, caucus or primaries. So or, I want to put this in perspective because Cale Weston has 44000 Tina Cannon has 40000 I'm a lowly state senator. Uh, I only represent about 2.7% of the state. I have more cash on hand in my campaign fund than either <laughs> Kale Weston or Tina Cannon, J just to put that in perspective. And, so. But you're such a, you're a prolific uh, legislator. But no, the point is there. I mean, so I don't know how Weston could even compete because commercials, he wouldn't even be able to buy one commercial for that amount of money. So No, and he couldn't send one mailer. I mean, he could send one mailer to maybe one county, but that's about it. One big county. Another thing that's worth noting, and I think folks might be interested in this if they don't know already, the cost of signatures is very expensive. And uh, uh, Ali Isom has, has put $214,000 of her campaign money into signatures. Uh, Becky Edwards was able to put less because I think she had volunteers, volunteers. or pay, paid staff doing it instead of uh, an outside firm. That was $35,000. Mike Lee I think had uh, a, an exclusive deal of some sort. Maybe you know this, but yeah. uh, he paid $423,000 for he, he paid extra to a company called Gather, who I've used in the past in full disclosure. He paid a premium to them, to that company. He basically paid them so they wouldn't collect signatures for Becky or Allie. So he paid extra. And it Shows didn't pay off because they, they got their signatures anyway. So. But how incredibly expensive it really is. I mean, that is a lot of money. So Well, and, and a statewide candidate has to collect 27,000 signatures. Uh, for, for my race, I only have to uh, collect 2,000. Steve Handy, who didn't collect signatures and lost at convention, only, only would have had to collect 1,000 signatures. So if you get 50 people to collect 20 signatures for, uh, from people that they already know, that's 1,000 signatures. So I, I don't know. Yeah, 28,000 is a lot harder than 1,000. That's all I'm saying. Oh, for sure. For sure. All right. And a couple others worth noting. So Burgess Owens has uh, 400,000 cash on hand, where his challenger, Jake Hunsaker, he has $24,000. <laughs> um, Jake who? I've never heard of this guy. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, and uh, great, or sorry, John Curtis, he has almost $800,000 on hand, which again, just really makes me ask, why didn't he collect signatures? It's very interesting. I'm in full disclosure, I'm a huge fan of the convention system and, uh, and you know, I would support the convention and not the signatures and so forth. But being the system as it is, uh, that's a lot of money on hand. Um, it's just interesting that he didn't go that direction. Well, and I Where, just have to say, Mike Lee, you just said collected signatures. He also collected signatures in 2016. It's interesting to me that he's now collected signatures twice, but many of his supporters who will vote for him without thinking twice will vote against anyone else who collects signatures. And it's, it's a little bit hypocritical. I just want to point that out. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough spot. That's for sure. But so uh, Curtis has a, has a challenger, this guy, Tim Alders, and he has put in $1.2 million of his own money. Yeah. So it's going to be very interesting at convention. Um, very, very interesting. And, and if those two go to a primary, 
I mean, Alders would definitely have the money, assuming he wants to spend it. Um, but, okay, but, okay, so I don't know. So the biggest surprise to me is that Tim Alders has $1.2 million of his own money to put into this race. It would take, so John Curtis is well-liked, well-known. Tim Alders is not well-liked and is not well-known. Um, he, he is a fringe candidate. He's run more times than I can account for, for office. He's lost every race. And so let me just say, this is not a dollar-to-dollar race. Um, John Curtis can get reelected for $800,000. I don't think that Tim Alders can defeat a popular incumbent for $1.2 million. So it's not, yeah. you know, now if Tim Alders had 5 or $6 million, it'd be a more interesting conversation. And, and yeah. Tim Alders is not the kind of candidate who's going to be able to raise money. He's going to, he's going to have to self-finance all the way through. I mean, he might get 10 bucks here and 20 bucks there, but he's not going to bring in hundreds of thousands of dollars. All right. That's it. That's all, all the right. time we got. Thanks, Corey. Back next week. See you.